This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, in your word, in Psalm 19.7, you say, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would make us wise this morning would make us wise unto salvation, and you would show us that Jesus truly is our great comfort. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. My name is David. I'm one of David. I'm one of the elders here at Bethany, and we're continuing on in our series, Foundations, going through the book of Genesis. And if you were not here. Last week, David Buving did a recap of the story of Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 5, from creation in chapter 1 all the way to the line of Seth in chapter 5. And that brings us to today, as you heard from the reading, to Genesis chapter 6. And as you might have guessed from the reading, this section can be a little bit odd, or maybe it just was to me, maybe that's just me, and it can be a little bit dark. So it will help you a lot if you have your Bibles open, whatever format you have, a book, a tablet, phone, scroll, whatever, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And that first verse is going to give us the setting of this story. Verse 1 reads, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So we know from before that Cain is starting his lineage in chapter 4, verse 17. 
and the following verses tell of his line. And while that's going on with Cain, chapter 5 tells of Adam and Eve having another son, Seth, who has children, who have children, and so on and so forth, having other sons and daughters, the text says. So what we have here in chapter 6, verse 1, is another narrative, a story that is taking place during the time when humans are multiplying, having sons and daughters. But this story gets kind of weird. 1 and 2. When man begat to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Hmm. What kind of story is this? This brings us to our first point on the outline about boundaries. I like boundaries. Don't you guys like boundaries? So, our first point is overstepping boundaries on earth as it is in heaven. So, let's, let's take, take some of these Hebrew phases and we're going to define them, starting with the sons of God. What does the phrase sons of God mean? Well, it's going to show up on the screen there. Sons of God refers to one of the class of God, not in the same class as the Lord God, but as God. So pretty much a spiritual being. Son of God is a spiritual being. This specific phrase is used this way also in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In the context of the story of Job, it's clear that spiritual beings are presenting themselves before the Lord. Now the same pattern is seen in the phrase, the son of man. Jesus said this a ton. The son of man, one of a class of humanity, or specifically a human male. The phrase son of doesn't necessarily mean born of. So if a son of God is a spiritual being, and a son of man is a human male, therefore, the daughters of man would be a female class of humankind, specifically a female or a human female. Women. The daughters of man, these women, are attractive. And attractive, the word attractive, it means good. It means fair and appealing. So what is happening here? The sons of God, these spiritual beings, see that women are attractive and they take them as wives. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, wait a minute. Have we heard that same pattern or rhythm before? Does this remind you of anybody? Look at Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's almost like the same story, but with different characters. In fact, the same word for good is used in both. But hold on a second and look at that verse how often are we tempted, not by bad things, but we're tempted by good things? Authority, productivity, sex, alcohol, food, pleasure, family. The enemy regularly tempts us with good things, good things that are disordered and not in their proper place. But continuing on, verse 1 and 2 were written this way for the reader to recognize, hey, I've read this before. 
with the intent to make you think about what happened the last time you heard it. And you remember what happened, right? They took the fruit, they ate it, their eyes were opened, and they hid from God. They believe a lie that they could be like God by taking the fruit. In a way, you could say they were tempted to be more spiritual, to become more like God. They overstepped a boundary. And what was the result? The result was death. It was expulsion from the garden and fracture in their relationship to each other and with the Lord God. Now, in this story, in verse 2, we sort of have like an ironic inverse. The spiritual beings see that women are good, they're attractive, and they take as they want. These spiritual beings are trying to get more physical. These angelic beings overstep a boundary as well. And what are the results? The results are the Nephilim, which we'll get to in a moment, and a worsening of the human condition. This is a weird, gross overstepping of boundaries, a crossing of natures. And one thing we can note so far in the story of Genesis is that not only do humans overstep God-established boundaries, but apparently spiritual beings do the same thing. This is a bizarre passage, one of the more difficult ones to understand in the Bible. And briefly, I just want to bring up some views about the sons of God and the Nephilim in Genesis 6. So there are two current major views on the sons of God and the Nephilim. The first view is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Um, they're demons that possess men. Uh, they have relations with women and so on and so forth. While the view that I'm teaching today and the view that I hold to is that rebel spiritual beings come down, actually physically copulate with human women, and they produce semi-divine giants. Now clearly, this is a challenging passage, and all views have some pros and cons to them. Much like other parts of the Bible, there are God-fearing, Jesus-loving people who differ on their view of this. But whose view matters the most? Whose view matters the most? Whose view always matters the most and actually defines reality? The Lord God, his view matters most. He always sees and defines things correctly. And what is his response to this? We always need to be asking this question in life. What is God's response to anything? And we will be asking it again in a few minutes. Why? Because God is the one who determines right and wrong. The New Testament writers and followers of Jesus had an understanding of this bizarre story, a better understanding than we do. Jude, Jesus' half-brother in his small letter, right starting in verse 6, it's coming up on the screen, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's a happy verse. Um, Peter, in his second letter, writes something very similar. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, 
If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Both Peter and Jude are talking about false teachers here, but they're also comparing the sin of these spiritual beings, these sons of God, with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19, which is a gross overstepping of boundaries in an unnatural way. It is wickedness. The Lord's response, verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty. Why this remark? Well, clearly the Lord is not pleased with what has just happened. The Lord knows that flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit because he determines what things are and what things are not, what is good and what is bad. Now, whichever view you hold on who the sons of God are, God's view of this event is that it's not good. It's really bad. It's wicked. God is displeased by the activity of both humans and spiritual beings, and now the Lord God places a time limit, either 120 years to a human's life or 120 years until some sort of judgment, maybe both. And what about the Nephilim? The Nephilim, the Nephilim, the Nephilim. It's a difficult word to say, and it's a difficult word to translate. However, the clearest and most faithful definition that honors the context of the scriptures is giants. In fact, some of yours might just say giants right there. Giants are actually a thing in the books of Moses, in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And here they appear to be the offspring of sons of God and daughters of men. In verse 4, we read that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You remember the story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel 16? Goliath, the giant, would be a descendant of the Nephilim. That also afterward in verse 4 could refer to the presence of Nephilim after the flood. Moses also describes them here as the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Moses' readers would know about these guys, these reckless, notorious, giant, semi-divine men that many believed were gods come down. This likely would have been common legend at that time. In fact, Jesus and Peter would have likely heard stories about them when they were growing up. But God is communicating through Moses here. He's telling the reader about the real and the true story about these giants, that their parents rebelled, leading humanity into further rebellion. Again, we've got to go back to the question of, what does God think about all this? This brings us to the second point in the outline. We're going to talk about the heart. We've got to get to the heart of God. So, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I like how my NIV states it. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Wow. So notice again the pattern. So first, Eve saw the fruit. She saw that it was good, and she took it. And then the sons of God, they saw the women. They saw that they were good, and they took of them. But now we have the Lord. He saw the wickedness of man. He saw that it was bad, and he's grieved by it. And then he's going to be taking some action in verse 7. Do you see the pattern? The writer is communicating with painful irony in this language. The word intention in Hebrew means formed, similar to the word that God used when he formed the earth. So in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God forms good things, extremely good things, and he calls them and defines them as good. But now, humans are forming wickedness because their hearts are producing wickedness and humans are calling it good. And that word for wicked is a nuanced word. It has multiple potential meanings. It doesn't just mean sinisterly evil, but it can also mean like bad or poor quality, like a bad quality light bulb or the milk that went bad. So we have hearts that form evil But even when the thoughts and actions are sometimes on the verge of being good, they just really aren't that good. Like a wicked cook who not only sins in the treatments of his customers by yelling at them or in his workers by cheating them and in his thought life, because we all do that, but even his product, his food, is like bad, lame food. And people still pay for it. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis, state this way on verse 5. It's coming up. It's kind of a long one. It's hard to conceive of a more emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart. The words every, other, continually leave nothing out. The term every intention is literally every forming, which comes from the the metaphorical sense of the verb that describes a potter in the act of forming and molding his vessel. Their depravity was not a temporary state. There were no relentings, no repentances, no hesitations. Lust was their medium, violence their method. This was total inveterate depravity. Inveterate means like long established, it's not going to change. Unchanging depravity. Those are very strong words. And if you want to read other places where God says something similar, you can look up Psalm 36. Verses 1 through 4. You can also look up Romans 3, 10 to 17. And you can look up Jeremiah 17, especially verse 9. One of the things we're doing in this series on Genesis is we've been looking at the Bible's explanation for the problem of evil. And this verse is sort of like a culminating statement thus far. This little story gives us two reasons why our world is in such bad shape. One... Humanity rejected God in Genesis 3, and 2, now there's a heavenly population that has rejected God in Genesis 6, and it results in total depravity. This is a perverted version of the world that God created. Did you catch the contrast? In Genesis 1:31, God calls all things very good, and now in Genesis 6, 5, God's calling the wickedness of people what it is, which is bad. How does God feel about this? This hurts him. 
The NIV reads that his heart was filled with pain. It grieves him, and he regrets making man. Regretted in the ESV or some older translations say repented unto. That word regretted can have connotations of regret, but also of looking for comfort. God is brokenhearted about his world and his creatures, and he's looking for consolation. He's created a good world, but his creatures in their power have rebelled and marred it. And God cares too much to just leave his creatures to continue on as they are, destroying life. So he makes the call to end it all in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Doesn't say anything about fish. But you might be asking, I mean, really? Only evil continually? It's kind of harsh. Do you really believe that, David? Isn't God being a little overdramatic? And that is a fair question, and yes, I do believe it. But we all know nice people. We all know good people, right? It's only right to question our hearts, too. We looked at God's hearts, so now we're going to look at our hearts. Again, we have to ask the question, who rightfully determines the nature of things? Who sees clearly what is right and what is wrong? I mean, who dreamed up the heavens and the earth and then spoke them into existence? Who dreamed up and saw in his beautiful mind the sons of God and humans? And who saw it when it was all good, when it was very good? And who are the ones that took from the tree? One of the messages that the story of Genesis conveys is that the choices that we make are powerful. Have you considered that? Have you considered that you and me, that we harness great power in our choices? Choices that can either make God happy or hurt his feelings. Man, how many men and women have ruined whole societies because of choices? I mean, we can talk all day about infamous people, people like Hitler and Palpat, but let's consider this, you and I, let's consider our choices. How often do we make the choice to determine right or wrong in our own estimation? And what is the fallout from that choice? And in the end, were we right or were we wrong? Or how often do you or I concoct some idea in our minds in order to protect or defend ourselves? How often do I justify myself in any given situation? The biblical writers state that God, that he is the one who justifies the wicked, not me. Or how often do I think about the future with skepticism or downright worry when Jesus commands me outright, do not worry, and that I should trust in him, but I don't trust him, and I just keep on worrying. And what's the result of that? Or how often do you feel that you know you should do that thing that you're supposed to do, the right thing, but then you just don't do it? And then you feel guilty, and you feel awful about it. And then when you feel guilty and you feel awful, you don't run to Jesus for refuge and care, but instead you hide, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, 
because you're scared and you judge yourself. Man, what would have happened if Adam and Eve took the fruit, their eyes were open, and instead of hiding, they took a huge risk and ran to the Father? Or how often do I forgive? Like really forgive. Like release my enemy from debt and give them to Jesus who gives me freedom and eyes to love and bless my enemies, the ones who've wronged me? What would the world look like if we were a people that truly forgave and blessed our enemies, just like how Jesus forgave and blesses us? Or how often do we construct our own identity? Well, I'm the nurse, or I'm the breadwinner, or I'm the hard worker, or I'm the pastor elder, or I'm the mom, or I'm the fill in the blank, but we fail to receive our primary identity first from the Father. David, you are my son, and I love you, and I keep on loving you because of what my son did for you. Marty, I am proud of you because of the work that Jesus did for you, and I love you. Cameron, you are a saint, buddy, because of what Jesus did for you. But we don't hear those things, and we choose to live in the own identity that we create. The list could go on and on, but do you see? It's like we need a human who can make the right choice all the time. Whether we know Jesus or not, we all still have a sin nature, a tendency to reject God and his view about how life is, and we determine our own view, believing a lie, or as Paul says in Romans, we exchange the truth for a lie, and the result is devastation. Devastation to the created order, devastation in our souls, devastation in our relationships, and apparently it's devastating to God, like personally. When God sees his creatures that he made for greatness, doing their own thing, choosing their own way, rejecting him, he is heartbroken. When was the last time that you were heartbroken? How did it feel? Have you considered how your attitudes, your thoughts and actions could hurt the God of the universe? That he would allow himself to be hurt that way? Not that he is detracted from or any less of the all-powerful holy God that he is, but that he allows us to distort the image that he has given us to represent him? That we would hurt him? Our stewardship of creation has dramatic consequences. In verse 7, God is announcing the undoing of all that he has done in chapters 1 and 2. He's changing his direction in how he deals with his creation based upon our poor stewardship. The good father could not let his children continue destroying each other and this beautiful place that he made. So he vows to destroy all of his creation except fish. And if the story ended there, and thus God ended the heavens and the earth, we would have a complete cycle that would kind of look a little bit like this. Chaos, order, creation, life, tree, death, decreation, disorder, chaos. But, which is one of the most arresting and many times hopeful words in the Bible, but in verse 8, we have hope. That brings us to our third point. 
But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in the next few verses, there's a shift. There's a change in the tone. It reads, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Continuing on in 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Do you know what Noah means? It means rest or comfort. Kind of like the word regretted. Do you remember the prophecy that Lamech made? The Lamech from Seth's line, the one that he made in Genesis 5.29. He said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, talking about Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah would bring rest and relief, but how? Noah is favorable in the sight of God, not in his own eyes. God was pleased with Noah. He has found favor in the eyes of God, but why? Now, the text gives us two reasons. First is that Noah is righteous and blameless. And Noah's being righteous and blameless has to do with his trust and faith in God. Noah's heart was just as crooked as the next, but Noah responded to God differently. Noah was not saved by his righteousness, but by God's grace and through his own faith. He is a recipient of grace. The second reason the text gives is that Noah walked with God. Like Enoch... His forefather, who was not because God took him, Noah walked with God. Noah had a relationship with the Lord God. Noah knew God, what he was like. While the rest of the world was doing its own thing, Noah was living differently. You could say, as the writer of Hebrews does, that Noah lived by faith. We're going to see next week what Noah's faith looked like when he walked it out with God and how his faith saved a small remnant of humanity. Walking with God. Do you think about that much? Do you know that you can do that just as much as you can hurt God's feelings, you can walk with him, you can please him, you can know him? What does walking with the Lord God look like? We know from Noah that it looks like an active belief, faith. Walking with the Lord God equals trusting the Lord God and obeying him. And that brings us to the last point that we have to end on, which is a better Noah. Well, spoiler alert, Noah isn't that great. He did not always walk by faith. In chapter 9, he gets drunk and some weird thing happens with his tent. Plus, Noah makes it to 950 years, and then he dies. And while Noah walked with God and preserved a remnant, he didn't crush the head of the snake. But Noah had a descendant who did. This better Noah. I think you know who it is. Just like Adam, Abel, Seth, and Enoch, now Noah points us to the better and more perfect human, Jesus. Like Noah... The father was pleased with Jesus, his son. This is my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And the grace of God was upon Jesus, the gospel writers say. Jesus always made and continues to make the right choices. He always pleases his father. Jesus walked with his father. 
And like Noah, Jesus lived by faith. But unlike Noah, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, of your and my faith and Noah's faith as well. And like Noah, Jesus was obedient to God's righteous standard of living, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And like Lamech, Noah's dad, looking for comfort in his son, Noah. Jesus is the ultimate comforter. Jesus satisfies and comforts, so to speak, his father by living obediently and in loving relationship with him and by satisfying the father's need for justice by taking our wickedness and our rebellion on himself on the cross. Jesus also comforts us in our distress and he delivers us from the curse of the ground and the just wrath of the Father. And Jesus is even now interceding before the Father, comforting us so that we might comfort others in their distress. And that actually is what brings us to the table today. This table is both a reminder of our need and a celebration of our provision. In verse 7, God said that he would blot out humanity, and he did. He did so in the flood, but a few thousand years later, God the Father blotted out the life of his own son on our behalf for you and me. And like washing a dish, he wipes clean our sins, and he raises his son to the grave. So as the servers come forward this morning and prepare for communion, I want you to sit and think and talk with the Lord. I want you to ponder, and maybe you don't have to ponder too hard, your need for him. Maybe some things come to mind as you ponder, and that's okay, because <laughs> this is how it works. <laughs> and, and remember that Jesus cleanses you today. Think about that.